Hi, I'm Patrick Hines from the hit true crime comedy podcast, True Crime Obsessed. And I'm making a new true crime podcast with my best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. Our podcast is called Obsessed with Disappeared. And each episode tells the mysterious story of a missing person by recapping an episode of the ID show Disappeared. The episodes are light and funny, but we never find the jokes at the expense of the victim or the crime. Yeah, we're not monsters, you guys. And besides, girl, it's mostly just me making fun of you anyway. Yeah. You know, people think you're nice. I think that's the biggest (laughs) misconception about you. Anyway, Obsessed with Disappeared is a super easy listen. It's hilarious and informative true crime storytelling from two best friends who truly love each other and will do just about anything to make the other one laugh. So... If you're fascinated by cases of missing people and you're serious about true crime, but you also love to laugh, you'll love Obsessed with Disappeared. Find Obsessed with Disappeared wherever you get your podcasts. This is a Scream Queen production. Tuesday. Welcome to another episode of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Today's story is a frustrating one and one that has some ties to the true crime world that you might not expect. So sit back, grab yourself a taco or two, because it's time for another dead time story. Picture it. Benton Harbor, Michigan, 2001. It's February 16th, exactly 20 years ago today. The temperature is below freezing, there are several inches of snow on the ground, and the winter wind is whipping outside. It's the kind of weather that no one should be out in, which is exactly why Cheryl Craft is so frantic when she places a call to 911 around 1.30 a.m. Because her 12-year-old son Stevie, who'd taken his two dogs for a walk several hours earlier, never returned home. Cheryl's worried he's out there somewhere, injured, lost maybe, She needs help. 20 years later, she's still looking for that help. Benton Harbor is located down in the southeast corner of the state, just off the Lake Michigan shoreline. It's a place we've been before. It's where our favorite long-haired baseball-playing cultists lived, which we talked about in Season 1, and it's very near where wife and mother Amy Hensley met her tragic end, which we talked about in Season 2. For such a small town, less than 10,000 people, Benton Harbor has seen more than its fair share of tragedy. In 2001, it was home to the Kraft family, Stephen Sr. and his wife Cheryl and their two sons, 12-year-old Stevie and 6-year-old Eddie. They lived on Holly Drive, a dead-end street in the Benton Heights neighborhood that backed up to a wooded area with a creek and some ponds. It was a close-knit neighborhood. Everyone knew everyone. In fact, Stevie's older half-sister, who was married, lived just a few houses down. No one drove down Holly Drive that didn't belong there, and if a stranger did wind up in their midst, people noticed. But no one noticed a thing out of place on February 15th. 
February 15th was a Thursday, and the next day would be 12-year-old Stevie's first day back at Hull Elementary School following a five-day suspension for fighting. Stevie was a well-behaved student. He'd never been in trouble before, but some asshole kid had attacked him. Stevie fought back, and they both wound up suspended, which is some bullshit. Uh, The people that knew Stevie well described him as rambunctious and adventurous, Those that knew him from school described him as an introverted kid with few friends. So, seems like he was kind of one way at school and a complete other way at home with his family. As the sun set and temperatures outside took a nosedive that Thursday evening, Stevie asked his mom if he could take his dogs for a walk. She was in the kitchen making his favorite dinner, chicken with cheese and potato wedges, His little brother, Eddie, was a sidekick, and he would normally join Stevie for his outdoor adventures, but the six-year-old was sick and had gone to bed early. Cheryl told Stevie he could go outside, but to stay close and to be back in time for supper. He promised her that he would. He rounded up his two dogs, six-month-old German Shepherd Chopper and an older Shepherd Chow mix, and he headed outside. Stevie was about five foot two roughly 100 pounds, with short brown hair and green eyes. It looks like in his most recent school photo, like he might have had an earring in his left ear, but I'm not entirely sure because the quality is kind of poor, so it might just be like pixelation, but it does look like he's got an earring. He was wearing an aqua and purple Charlotte Hornets jacket, a tan and white striped shirt, tan parachute pants. I tried to look up what parachute pants are, and I got a lot of answers Uh, Some pictures look kind of like MC Hammer pants. Some looked just like regular old cargo pants. So I'm not real sure what that even means, Uh, but that's how it's described, tan parachute pants. And black lug boots. Not Uggs, lugs. The last person to see 12-year-old Stevie Kraft was a neighbor who spotted him playing in the field across the street from his house with his dogs at about 6.45 p.m. When he didn't return home for dinner, His parents weren't too worried. It was common for him to take the dogs for a walk and wind up at his older sister's house just down the street. So as 9.30 rolled around, Stevie's dad called down to the sister's house to tell her to send Stevie home. It was getting late, and he had to get up early to go back to school the next morning. But when Stevie's sister informed him that she hadn't seen Stevie that night, panic set in instantly. Steve Sr. began knocking on doors of nearby houses. Only one neighbor recalled seeing Stevie and the dogs and said they were out at the end of the field. So Steve Sr. took a flashlight and he began searching the field. He found boot prints alongside two sets of dog footprints, and he tracked the prints to Harbor Haven Ministries, which was about a block from the house, and then the prints just stopped. There were two ponds out behind the building, but the ponds didn't appear to be disturbed at all. They were both frozen over. There was no breaks in the ice, no melted spots, no tracks down by the pond. The later and colder it got, the more difficult the search became. Stevie wasn't wearing a hat or gloves when he left the house, and if he was out there somewhere, injured and needing help, they had to find him. So at 1.30 a.m. on the 16th, nearly seven hours after Stevie was last seen, his mom called the police, who went out to the house and took a missing persons report. They searched for a bit in the woods around the house, but Stevie and his two dogs had seemingly vanished. Over the next several days, the entire community got involved in the search for Stevie Craft. People skipped work to join search parties. Companies donated supplies and money for a reward fund. 
Bloodhounds were brought in, but they lost Stevie's scent right about the same place that his father had lost his footprints, Harbor Haven Ministries. The building was searched, but there was no sign of Stevie. There were infrared helicopter searches. The FBI got involved. Stevie's dad, who'd grown up in the area and knew it like the back of his hand, searched every ditch, gully, abandoned factory, dilapidated barn, and storm drain in the area. Authorities dragged the creek and scoured the woods. Nothing. Three days after Stevie disappeared, the older of his two dogs returned home, jumpy and excitable. He led the family back to the pond behind the ministry building, but there was still no sign of Stevie. They found the puppy, Chopper, a couple days later, gnawing on a deer carcass down near the creek. With absolutely no sign of Stevie anywhere, the chance that he had simply been injured or somehow gotten lost was very slim because they would have found him by now. Authorities and Stevie's family feared the worst, that he'd been abducted or met with foul play. In the spring, when the ponds and the streams thawed, dive teams were sent in, but they found no trace of the boy, who'd now been missing for months. Sightings of Stevie at various places, including Midway Airport in Chicago, turned out to all be false leads. Not intentionally false, but people, you know, his picture was everywhere. Someone would see a kid that looked like him, call it in, police would investigate, and it it was never him. Still, police refused to give up their search, and Stevie's family refused to give up. But they were running out of options. Even being featured on America's Most Wanted didn't bring in new tips, and eventually the case went cold. Until March of 2007, when a woman called in a promising tip to the Benton Harbor Police Department. Her name was Michelle McNamara, and she suggested that a man by the name of Michael Devlin might have abducted Stevie Kraft. If those names don't sound familiar, they should. Michelle McNamara was a true crime queen with a capital Q. She is best known for her work on the Golden State Killer case, which was solved in 2018. She's actually the one that coined the phrase Golden State Killer. Michelle was into true crime way before it was cool. Can relate. She was born on April 14, 1970, and grew up in a big old Irish Catholic family in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Because the Michigan side of Lake Michigan is much beachier than the Illinois side, Michelle's family had a summer ca- summer cabin? Summer cabin in Michigan in Palisades Park, which according to the internet is a swanky private country club in the little beach town of Covert. Covert is only about 20 miles north of Benton Harbor where Stevie Kraft lived. So, when he disappeared in 2001, Michelle took notice. But Michelle McNamara's obsession with true crime began long before that. Way back in 1984, when she was just 14, a young woman was murdered in her neighborhood. The case was never solved, but Michelle's interest was piqued. After college, she moved to Los. Oh my God, I can't talk today. After college, she moved to Los Angeles to become a film and TV writer. There, she met and fell in love with actor and comedian Patton Oswalt. The two were married in 2005. In 2006, Michelle launched the website True Crime Diary. She was not an investigator or part of the law enforcement community. She was just a writer that loved true crime. Again, can relate. She noticed the small details. She made common sense observations, which is why when a 13-year-old Missouri boy disappeared in broad daylight in 2007, Michelle McNamara was the first person to make the connection between his case and that of another missing boy in the area. January 8, 2007 was a Monday. Kids were just getting back to school following winter break. 
In Beaufort, Missouri, a small rural town in Franklin County about 60 miles southwest of St. Louis, it was a mild afternoon, right around 50 degrees. So 13-year-old Ben Ownby wasn't in a huge rush to make it inside when his school bus dropped him off less than 500 feet from his front door around 3.30 p.m. Ben was a Boy Scout and a straight-A student. He was on the small side for his age. He was about 4'10 and 95 pounds. He had short brown hair, blue eyes, and glasses. That day, he was wearing blue jeans and a St. Louis Rams hoodie. He and his 15-year-old neighbor that lived nearby, Michael, nope, not Michael, Mitchell Holtz, uh, got off the bus together like they did every day. Mitchell went in one direction, Ben went in the other. It can be hard to visualize distance in feet, just like if you try to give me directions, talking about north, south, east, and west, I'm going to stop listening real quick. But 500 feet, not that far. It's about the length of one and a half football fields. So Ben's house was visible from where he got off the bus. Mitchell heard the sound of a vehicle taking off at a high rate of speed. So he turned around and he noticed a rickety old pickup truck speeding away from the direction Ben had been heading. And he also noticed that Ben was gone. Police were called and an Amber Alert was issued quickly because Mitchell Holtz was able to give a description of the vehicle. And that's the key, people. Anytime a child goes missing, you know, it's scary, there's urgency, and you hear people say, why is there no Amber Alert? Why isn't there an Amber Alert? Amber Alerts are very specific. There has to be knowledge that the child was abducted, not just that they're missing, but knowledge that they were abducted. And there has to be a vehicle involved, and a description of the vehicle available. Those are the qualifications for an Amber Alert. I fully agree that there should be just a blanket system for when a child goes missing. We put out the the alert to everyone, but Amber Alerts specifically have to involve an actual abduction, a known abduction, and a vehicle. Anyway, uh, so authorities began searching for a white Nissan pickup truck with a camper shell, no hubcaps, and an excessive amount of dent and rust. Dent, dents, multiple dents and rust. Neighbors told police that they had seen that very truck lurking in the area all afternoon. Searches in Ben's neighborhood turned up no evidence, and I, I mean, they wouldn't, because unlike in a lot of kidnapping cases, they knew exactly where he disappeared from. So if there were no clues in that 500 feet between the bus stop and the house, there weren't going to be any anywhere else because he went missing somewhere between point A and point B. The FBI was called in, a task force was formed, and flyers were printed by the thousands and distributed around Beaufort. I don't know if it's Beaufort or Beaufort. I'm not sure. I'm going to call it Beaufort. Um, and the surrounding towns. The day after Ben Ombi was kidnapped, Michelle McNamara made this entry on her True Crime Diary website. One intriguing lead investigators should examine is a similar disappearance four years ago and 38 miles from Beaufort. She was referring to the 2002 disappearance of 11-year-old Sean Hornbeck from Richwoods, Missouri. Richwoods is another small rural town about 60 miles from St. Louis. October 6, 2002 was a Sunday. Sean Hornbeck, a fifth grader at Richwoods Elementary School, who loved baseball, SpongeBob, and his PlayStation, left home around 1 p.m. on his bike to go to a friend's house. He promised his mom he'd be home by 5 o'clock, in time for dinner. But 5 o'clock rolled around, and Sean wasn't back. 
At 6 o'clock, his mom went to his friend's house to drag him home, and they told her that he had never shown up. So by the time she realized he was missing, he'd already been gone for five hours. Frantic, she started knocking on doors and making phone calls. Turns out, Sean hadn't gone straight from home to his buddy's house like he said he was going to. Friends and neighbors saw him all over town that day, playing basketball with friends, buying candy from the grocery store. A family member of Sean's saw him at about 4.30 riding his bike back toward home. Sean's mother, Pamela Akers, called police just after dark to report him missing. He's scared of the dark, she told them. He's always home by dark. Sean was four foot eight, around 90 pounds, with short brown hair and brown eyes. He had an earring in his left ear. He was wearing an orange Astros t-shirt, not the Houston Astros, but after his little league team, the Astros, blue jeans, and white Nikes. The idea that Sean might have run away was strongly refuted by his family. Sean was a happy kid. He was in the process of being adopted by his stepdad, Craig Akers, at the time of his disappearance. Sean's birth father had died when he was very young, and Craig was the only father that he'd ever known. When he was six, he actually walked his mom down the aisle and gave her away when she married Craig. He also had two older sisters that adored him. Uh, It was possible that he'd maybe gotten hurt while he was out riding his bike, This was a rural area with lots of creeks and marshes and abandoned mine shafts. The terrain was so treacherous that the search for Sean had to be called off every night when it got dark. Hundreds of volunteers turned out to help search for Sean in the following days and weeks. They scoured the woods by foot, ATV, horseback, helicopters circled overhead. Rich woods in the surrounding towns were plastered with flyers. Sean's parents created a website for tips and later the Sean Hornbeck Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to the search and rescue of abducted children. They sank, sunk, sank, uh, invested every dollar they had into searches, private investigators, rewards, but nothing came of it. With no leads and no evidence, Sean's case went cold. Over the years, his parents were occasionally taunted through their website. Uh, At 1.59 a.m. on December 1st, 2005, so over three years after Sean went missing, someone by the name of Sean Devlin posted on the website, How long are you planning to look for your son? Twelve hours later, that same user wrote to ask if he could compose a poem for the family, but he never did. So there were definitely similarities between Sean Hornbeck's 2002 disappearance and Ben Ombi's 2007 disappearance. The boys' physical descriptions were similar. They were close in age. Their homes were less than 45 minutes apart. And they both disappeared in the middle of the afternoon in broad daylight. Could their cases be connected? Michelle McNamara certainly seemed to think so. Her blog post suggesting the crimes were linked was posted on January 9th, 2007, the day after Ben's disappearance. That same day, flyers reached Emo's Pizza in Kirkwood, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis about 60 miles from Ben's hometown. Owner Mike Prosperi was horrified when he realized that the truck police were looking for matched the description of a truck owned by one of his employees, an employee that had left work abruptly the day before, the day of Ben Ombi's kidnapping, saying he was sick, and he'd called in again the next day. Michael Devlin was a 41-year-old, 6'4", 300-pound bachelor who lived alone in a small one-bedroom apartment in Kirkwood. He managed the pizza shop by day and worked part-time answering phones at a local funeral home at night. 
He was adopted into a large family as an infant. He was one of six children. He had three brothers and two sisters, all of whom were also adopted. He had a good home life, big holiday celebrations, vacations at the family's summer house in Pentwater, Michigan. Pentwater is a beach town in northern Michigan on the Lake Michigan coastline. From Kirkwood, Missouri, that's about an eight-hour drive. I cannot even imagine being stuck in a car that long with six kids. I actually had a friend in middle school and high school whose entire family vacationed in Pentwater every summer. We're talking the whole family. Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, third cousins, all of them. When I was in eighth grade, I went with them for a week one summer, and I remember getting the worst sunburn I have ever gotten in my life, in my whole life. And one night it stormed so hard for so long, I thought our camper was going to rip apart at the seams. You could literally hear like the metal screeching and whining as the whole thing was shaking. And the next morning, I walked up to the payphone at the front of the campground to call my parents and check in. This was the longest that I'd ever been away from my family. And so I was telling my mom about the storm and how scary it was. And she was like, yeah, well, we had tornadoes all over Lansing last night. There were tornadoes just spinning away down Waverly Road. Anybody remember that? would have been like 93, maybe 94. I don't know. Anyway, that's what I remember the most about Pentwater. But super cute beach town, I recall. My point is, Michael Devlin had a completely untraumatizing upbringing. Totally unremarkable guy in general. In his younger years, he was said to be funny and outgoing. And then as he hit his late 30s, early 40s, he became more withdrawn and bitch-like. He was the guy that would call the police if anyone was parked in the wrong assigned parking spot at his apartment building. Just kind of an asshole. Michael Devlin's entire family had worked at Emo's Pizza at one point or another, and Devlin himself had worked there for 25 years. So his boss is looking at this flyer that definitely describes Michael Devlin's truck, but he's like, there's no way. I know this guy. He wouldn't abduct a kid. This reminds me a lot of Ann Rule and Ted Bundy because as the report, you know, the description of his vehicle came out and even the fact that he identified himself as Ted, like she knew, but she she knew Ted. So for her, there's no way, there's no way this is him. It's fucking him, okay? So that night after work, Mike Prosperi drove past Michael Devlin's apartment building to get a good look at his truck, probably hoping that he would find proof that it was not the same truck. But it definitely fucking was. Prosperi goes home to sleep on it, or probably not sleep on it at all. He probably stayed up all night. And the next morning, he stopped at the local sheriff's department. He had a friend that was on the force. And so he approached his friend, and he was like, look, I think this is the truck you're looking for. But also, there's no way that this is the guy you're looking for. And his friend, the police officer, was like, cool, thanks. We'll look into it. Prosperi leaves the station and goes to his pizza shop, and guess who decides to return to work that very day after being out sick for two days? Michael Devlin. January 10th was a Wednesday, two days after Ben Ombi was abducted, the day after Michelle McNamara made a connection between his kidnapping and the disappearance of Sean Hornbeck on her blog, the day after Mike Prosperi realized his employee Michael Devlin might be involved in the Ombi kidnapping. That morning, Prosperi had made his report at the police station, and that night, 
Two officers were out on an unrelated call at Michael Devlin's apartment building when they spotted his beat-up white Nissan pickup truck with a camper cab. They asked some of the neighbors whose vehicle it was, and then they watched Michael Devlin's apartment for any sign of movement. At one point, Devlin left the apartment to take his trash to the dumpster. The officers tried to question him about his truck, and he got super defensive. He went back inside his apartment. He shut the door. He wouldn't let him in. For the life of me, I will never understand why, but it was two whole more days before the FBI showed up at Emo's Pizza while Devlin was working and asked him to step outside. They asked for permission to search his truck, which he granted. While agents were searching the vehicle, Devlin sat in the back of the police cruiser with another agent. This agent noticed that every time Ben Ombi's name came up, Devlin visibly tensed up. Finally, they were just like, look, bruh. We matched your tire treads to the scene. We know you took the kid, and that was all it took. He started crying, and he said, I'm a bad person, and he confessed. Authorities took Devlin back to his apartment, where he opened the door and let them inside. What they found shocked everyone. Sitting on the couch in Devlin's dingy, filthy apartment, playing video games in front of a giant TV screen, was not one teenager, but two. Ben Ombi easily recognizable from the flyers and news reports, looked up at the officers and asked, are you going to take me home? The other boy was older. He had dark, shaggy hair, pierced ears, and a lip ring. When officers asked him his name, his answer shocked them. I'm Sean Hornbeck. Sean Hornbeck, who disappeared into thin air four and a half years earlier. Sean Hornbeck, who officials had long ago written off as probably dead out there somewhere. Sean Hornbeck was alive. As unbelievable as that was, the story he told authorities was even more unbelievable. The day he was taken, October 6, 2002, had started out as a good day. It was a Sunday, so he got to sleep in, he got up and ate a big breakfast, played some video games on his PlayStation, and then he got permission to ride his bike to a friend's house that afternoon. Instead of going to just one place like he was supposed to, he went to a lot of places, had a fun little adventure. As long as he was back home by five, his parents would never know the difference. And that's what he was doing, riding his bike back toward home shortly before five when he noticed a truck slowly driving behind him. He felt like the truck was following him and he started to get nervous. But then the truck stopped and Sean kept going, so he figured he was just imagining things. Except he wasn't. The truck started following him again, this time picking up speed. Sean looked back just in time to see the truck bearing down on him. It hit his bike, tossing him and the mangled lime green hunk of aluminum into a ditch. The driver of the truck, a giant Ed Kemper-looking motherfucker, got out of the truck and ran toward Sean, feigning concern. He asked if he was all right, and he helped him up. Then he tossed the 11-year-old over his shoulder without any effort at all, carried him back up to the road, and threw him in the bed of his truck face down. He pressed his boot into Sean's back to hold him still, and he wrenched his arms behind him, binding them with duct tape. He then bound Sean's ankles with duct tape and put duct tape over his mouth. This whole time, Sean was fighting and screaming. Highway A, where Michael Devlin had attacked him, was usually a pretty busy roadway, but no cars passed when Sean Hornbeck needed them most. Once Sean's hands, arms, and mouth were secure— Devlin moved him to the passenger seat of the truck. He picked up Sean's bike and threw it in the back so that there would be no evidence of what had happened. Once Devlin got into the cab with Sean, he pointed a 9mm at him and said, 
You were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Sean sat in shocked silence as Devlin drove the hour back to his ground-level apartment in Kirkwood. It was musty, dirty, with dishes and trash piled high, but there was a big TV and a huge collection of video games. Devlin removed the duct tape from Sean's hands, feet, and mouth. He used rope to tie him to a dirty old futon. That first night, he raped Sean multiple times and took obscene photos of him. Turns out, the quiet Mr. Devlin had been heavy into child pornography for years. Before he went to sleep that night, Devlin put a gun to Sean's head and said, If you ever try to run or ever tell anyone, I'll kill you and your whole family. And he made Sean promise that he would never try to escape. For months, that was the nightly routine. Devlin would rape Sean repeatedly, sometimes photograph or record him, then put the gun to his head and threaten him, making Sean promise that he would never tell, never escape. Then he would tie a rope around his waist and around Sean so that if Sean tried to move while Devlin was sleeping, it would wake him up. During the day, Devlin went to work just like he always had. In fact, the two police officers that helped break the case were some of his best customers at Emo's Pizza. For the first month or so, Devlin would leave Sean tied to the futon while he was at work. He would return home every day for lunch to feed Sean and let him use the restroom. Eventually, that routine grew tiresome, and he decided that he'd worn Sean down enough that he probably didn't have to tie him up anymore. So one day, he left him free to roam while he was at work. When he returned home, he was shocked to see Sean just sitting on the couch playing video games. He was also furious. Part of the excitement for Devlin was that he was holding Sean captive. But if Sean wasn't going to try to escape when he had the chance, where was the fun in that? He'd spent so much time trying to break Sean's spirit, he hadn't given any thought to how he would feel when it actually happened. In an attempt to liven things up, the sick bastard pulled a gun and held it to Sean's head. Not even a flinch, which angered him more. He didn't want a docile captive, he wanted someone who feared him. He decided he no longer had a use for Sean if Sean wasn't going to fight anymore. So he forced Sean into his truck at gunpoint and drove him out to the country. He bound his hands and mouth with duct tape, picked him up by the neck, and began to strangle him. As Sean started to lose consciousness, he got the reaction he wanted, finally. He saw the fear in the child's eyes. Sean begged him not to kill him and promised him once again that he would never run and never tell. So Devlin let him live. But things had to change. He was keeping a kidnap victim in an apartment complex that other people lived in. It wasn't like they were out in the middle of nowhere. Trying to keep Sean hidden was exhausting. So he decided that they needed a story. They would live as father and son in the public eye. And that's what they did. Sean began going by the name Sean Devlin. He and Devlin went grocery shopping together. Sean was allowed to ride a bike and skateboard. He even made friends. His best friend was a boy named Tony Douglas who lived next door. He would have sleepovers at Tony's house, go out to dinner and the movies with him and his family. They never suspected that anything was amiss. Except for one time when Sean was over at their house hanging out and a news report came on the TV about Sean Hornbeck. Tony's sister Kelly was shocked by the resemblance. She asked Sean, you know, is this you? And he just laughed it off. How ridiculous, right? On one occasion, Sean was picked up by police who found him riding his bike after curfew. He gave his name as Sean Devlin and the apartment in Kirkwood as his home address, so the police took him straight back to his abductor. 
No one knew... No one that knew Sean Devlin had any suspicion that he was anyone other than Michael Devlin's son. Sure, Michael Devlin was a weirdo. And sure, Sean kind of got to do whatever he wanted. He never seemed to go to school, but people just assumed he'd dropped out. They had no idea that he was being raped on a nightly basis or that his real family was still out there searching for him. As anyone with children knows, they grow fast. And by the time he was 15... Sean was more of a man than a boy, and Michael Devlin didn't like grown men. He liked little boys, so he was going to have to go out and find a new one. He told Sean his plan, and the two fought over it. A, because Sean didn't want another child to have to go through what he'd been through. Two, because if Devlin had a new boy, what would happen to Sean? He'd already tried to kill him once when he had no use for him. Would he succeed this time? But Devlin wouldn't be swayed. He spent weeks driving through rural communities around St. Louis until he spotted a boy he wanted. He didn't know Ben Ombi was 13. He looked younger. He stalked Ben for weeks, lurking in the shadows. And then one day he told Sean, we're going to take him tomorrow. Sean told him he wouldn't have any part of it. The two fought the whole night. The next morning, Devlin got up and went to work, but he went home sick about one o'clock. He forced Sean to go with him to get his new boy. Devlin parked near a hair salon and waited for Ben's bus, which he knew would drop him off at 3.30. While they waited, Sean made up his mind that he was going to do whatever he could to help Ben to protect him. After the bus pulled away from the shoulder of the road, Devlin pulled up beside Ben and rolled down his window. He asked him if he knew where so-and-so lived, just made up a name, and Ben said no, but he also knew there was something wrong with the situation. He tried to run, but Devlin jumped out of the truck, pulled his gun, and forced Ben into the car, in between him and Sean. Sean did his best to shield Ben from Devlin's wrath. He tried to take the physical and sexual abuse so that Ben wouldn't have to, but the whole reason Devlin took another boy was because Sean didn't do it for him anymore. So Sean wasn't able to protect Ben for long, and Ben was sexually abused every day that he was with Michael Devlin. When the boys were rescued, the community was shocked. They called it the Missouri Miracle. News stations all over the country featured the story. I remember it vividly, mostly because it reminded me so much of the Stephen Stainer case. Uh, It didn't take long for news stations to get hit to the fact that Michelle McNamara had figured out the kidnappings were connected before police did. And it was the first, but definitely not the last time, that she was featured in national news for her armchair sleuthing. As such, the case took on a special meaning to Michelle, so she watched every interview, every special, which meant she was listening when Michael Devlin's brother gave an interview in which he talked about their perfectly normal upbringing and their summers at their cabin in Pentwater. And once again, a light bulb went off for Michelle. Michelle was familiar with the Stevie Craft disappearance because it happened so close to her family's vacation home. Stevie disappeared a full year and a half before Sean Hornbeck was abducted. If you look at side-by-side photos of Stevie and Sean, there is such a similarity. Stevie was 12, Sean was 11, Ben was 13. They all had slight builds and were within a couple inches and a few pounds of one another. They all had short brown hair and oddly were all wearing sporty clothes when they were abducted. They all disappeared without a trace near their homes in rural areas. To get to his cabin in Pentwater, which Michael Devlin often went to alone during the winter, specifically in the month of February, which is when Stevie went missing, 
Devlin had to drive right through Benton Harbor, where Stevie lived. After Michelle called in the tip to Benton Harbor police, they were able to link Michael Devlin to the area through gas receipts during the week that Stevie disappeared. But Michael Devlin didn't kill boys, right? He kept them. Not necessarily. He had every intention of killing Sean Hornbeck in the early days of his captivity, but he changed his mind. If Stevie had fought too hard, been too difficult, or not fought enough, Michael Devlin very well may have killed him. With as smoothly as his abduction of Sean Hornbeck went a year and a half later, it's highly unlikely that he was Devlin's first victim. In fact, Devlin testified that he first realized he was attracted to young boys when he was about 13 and tried to molest a younger child. Soon after, he developed an obsession with child pornography. When he was 30, he was on a family vacation, likely in Pentwater. He saw a 10-year-old boy by himself and had the overwhelming urge to take him. It was the first time he'd had such a compulsion, and it was the catalyst for him to start looking for a boy to kidnap. Just a few years later, Stevie Kraft disappeared. Also, a vehicle of interest at the time of Stevie's disappearance, based on a tip, was a silver and gray Toyota pickup truck with a white stripe and a gray camper top. Sounds a lot like the white truck that he had when he kidnapped Sean Hornbeck and Ben Ombi, right? Uh, At one point, Devlin was named the top suspect in Stevie's case, but he never admitted to it and no definitive evidence has been found, so Stevie's disappearance remains unsolved. For the kidnapping of Sean Hornbeck and Ben Ombi, Michael Devlin was charged with 80 counts of sexual assault, kidnapping, and attempted murder. He pled guilty on all counts and was given 74 life sentences plus 170 years. He won't be eligible for parole until he is over 100 years old if he lives that long. In 2011, another inmate attacked him with an ice pick during breakfast, stabbing him several times. The inmate, Troy Fenton, said he was trying to kill Devlin because the nature of Devlin's crimes repulsed him. Unfortunately, Michael Devlin survived the incident. As of 2019, he continues to be a suspect in the unsolved cases of at least five other missing boys, including Stevie Kraft from Benton Harbor, Michigan. At the time of this recording, Michael Devlin is housed at the Western Missouri Correction Center, and he is 55 years old. Ben Ownby and Sean Hornbeck were both returned to their families. Ben after four days, Sean after four years. I couldn't find a lot of current news on either of the boys. Maybe my Google is broken, or maybe my brain is. Probably that last one. But I figure if I really have to dig that hard for info on what they're doing now in 2021, maybe it's because they want their privacy. Uh, They definitely deserve it. So I'll just leave it at this. Ben Ombi will turn 28 this year, and Sean Hornbeck is going to be turning 30. So they're both grown men, and I hope that they're both leading fantastic lives. The disappearance of Stevie Kraft is still unsolved. Yesterday marked 20 years since he went missing. While it's easy to sit here and assume that Michael Devlin abducted and killed him, we don't know that for sure, and his family deserves real answers. If you have any information about the disappearance of Stephen Earl Kraft Jr., contact the Benton Township Police Department at 269-926-8221 and select Option 2 for Stevie's designated hotline. Michelle McNamara became a major player in the true crime community. She continued her blog, hosted one of the very first true crime podcasts, and worked relentlessly to help solve the Golden State Killer case. 
She signed a deal with HarperCollins to write a book about the Golden State Killer and was in the final stages of finishing her manuscript when she died in her sleep on April 21st, 2016, at the age of 46. Her death was ruled an accidental overdose of prescription medication. She left behind her husband, Patton, her daughter, Alice, and her unfinished manuscript. The book was finished by Patton and Michelle's friends and colleagues Paul Haynes and our pal Billy Jensen. I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer, was released on February 27, 2018. Less than two months later, the Golden State Killer case was solved. Michelle remains an inspiration to armchair detectives and true crime podcasters everywhere, myself included. Maybe myself especially. My main sources for today's episode were the website True Crime Diary, lots and lots and lots and lots of old newspaper articles that I found on newspapers.com, and a new podcast I found. Well, it's not new, but it's new to me. It's called Crime Binge. Uh, You can find a full list of my resources on the page for this episode on the So Dead website. All right, now let's talk for a bit. We didn't get to do this last episode because that one was so super long. So today I've got a few things for you. First, I want to give a shout out to everyone that's left a review for So Dead recently on either Apple Podcasts or the So Dead Facebook page. Reviews are so important as they help with rankings and visibility. Plus, they just make me feel good. They give me the warm and fuzzies. On Apple Podcasts, there was Laura Marie 1999, Quick Sticks 17, Scrimpy 182, Iris Grove, Dan Doherty 2014, Morgan Vermetti, Wolf 837422, the word yay followed by two exclamation parts, exclamation parts, exclamation points, three smiley faces and four hearts. Simply Me Dutch, Brandy H, Robert's Coffee, Tam Bam 511, Mrs. Mule Lover, SMJ 1976, Gilmore Girl ATX, and Cora Ray 524. Now, normally I don't give any attention to the negative reviews that I get because to you, but this one actually I found really comical because it made me feel like I finally made it in the podcasting world because I've seen similar ones on my favorite podcasts under their reviews. Uh, I got two stars and the title of the review was Too Many F-Bombs. It said a lot of things, but my favorite sentence was, I'm not a prude by any means, but seems like she's F-bombing just because she can. And that was the part that made me laugh because that's the part that I see. Um, Using swear words just because she can. Yes, that's why we all use swear words, because we can. We're allowed to. We're allowed to speak the way that we speak. And that's just, I I don't know, something about that just really struck me as funny because that's how I always see that relayed when people are complaining about the cursing is... They're swearing because they can. That isn't, I mean, fuck. That's why everyone swears, right? Shit. Anyway, um, Facebook reviews, there were a few. There was Liz Much, Kelly Gates, Sam Fran, and Allie Deem. So thank you all so much for taking time to leave reviews. Uh, If you'd like to hear your name on the podcast, all you've got to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an iPhone denier like myself, just leave the review right on the So Dead Facebook page. 
Next, we're going to try something new. So bear with me. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Only one way to find out, and that's to do it. So in season one, Danny and I ended each episode with file dumps. Uh, In season two, I answered listener questions. This season, I'm switching it up again. Remember way back before 2020 when we went to meetings? Gross. Uh, Meetings are just gross on their own. But then some sadist always had the bright idea to force everyone to do icebreakers. I hated that shit so much. Uh, It was sometimes fun to learn random things about other people. Sometimes. Sometimes it was super boring. But it was so much pressure to come up with something about yourself, especially because the most common thing, the most common icebreaker that I've encountered is tell the group something interesting about yourself. And that's a loaded question. Like, you don't want to be too boring, but how much is too much? Because, honey, I've been through some shit, okay? Um, But I thought it would be fun to tell you guys some interesting things and then have you share yours with me on the Facebook page. But uh, I can't call it an icebreaker, right? Because it's at the end of the episode, not at the beginning. We're an hour into this thing. The ice has been broken. So instead, I'm going to call it liquid cheese. Why? Well, for one, because I love cheese. But (laughs) one day not too long ago, I was out running errands, which is very stressful due to the mask and the constant sanitizing and the overall pandemicness of it all. I decided to stop at Arby's and I wanted an Arby melt. Not a beef and cheddar, which has that weird bun and is slathered with Arby sauce, but just an Arby melt, just a regular roast beef sandwich with cheese sauce. But they don't make Arby melts anymore, so I had to order a regular roast beef, and add cheese sauce. Yes, you can do that. You're welcome. And when the kid read it back to me, he said, one regular roast beef, add liquid cheese. (laughs) I don't know why that term bothered me so much, but I was horrified and amused all at the same time. Liquid cheese sounds just so gluttonous and unnecessary. I ate that shit. Don't get it twisted. But... I felt great shame. So that's what this last segment will be, liquid cheese. You don't need it. It's totally unnecessary, but here it is anyway. Enjoy the shit. Uh, If you're just here for the true crime, feel free to tune me out. This will add nothing to your experience. But if you want to hear me talk about some totally unrelated nonsense, listen on. So for today's liquid cheese, tell me something interesting about yourself. I got stabbed once, and I, I, yeah, I've been stabbed, and I don't think about it a whole lot, but um, so I live out in the country, and on my drive home from really anywhere, the road I have to take in and out from my house, there is uh, a cute little, like, homemade rinky-dink ice rink that some community members put together in one of the parks for the kids, And it's so cute to watch these kids out there ice skating, and there's usually a fire going. Uh, I have no intention of participating, but it's cute to see. Very, very small townish, right? So it got me thinking about ice skating. I grew up in South Lansing, so Washington Park, uh, there was a big ice skating rink when I was younger. And when I was in third, fourth grade, I was eight. 
uh, I took ice skating lessons and I got okay. I wasn't like great. I wasn't going to go on to any competitions or anything, but I was okay. And um, I, I liked to go ice skating. So uh, my best friend when I was eight, still my best friend now, my friend Trini, she wanted to learn how to ice skate. And so one night my dad took the two of us to the rink and what I would do, we, she was holding on to like the kind of the railing and I would skate a little bit ahead of her and wait for her to get to me. And so we were making this very slow round kind of up against the divider, the wall, whatever you want to call it, that kept the ice in the rink. I don't know, kept the people in the rink. So um, we're doing this and we were doing this for a while and there was this older teenager, and he was whipping around the rink super fast. I remember he had a mullet. He had those big 80s glasses, even though it was almost the 90s, but we'll forgive him. And when people experience traumatic things, you know, they'll often tell you, like, it went so fast, or I didn't even realize what was happening type of thing. That's definitely true. I remember I was a little ahead of Trini. She was getting close to me. I was looking at her. She was looking at me. And I saw her face before I felt anything. And then I just felt this tremendous pressure in my leg. And I looked down and this teenage kid that had been whipping around with the mullet and the big giant glasses was apologizing. He was saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, like, my leg hurt, but I didn't quite understand what was happening until the people around me started freaking out. Trini screamed. The ice monitors were coming. I saw my dad trying to, like, run across the ice. He didn't have skates on, so he's, like, in his shoes trying to run across the ice. And I look down, and there's just blood everywhere. And I'm still not really understanding what happened. I'm like, what is going on here? So my dad's trying to get Trini off the ice because she can't skate. He's in shoes. One of the ice monitor people, I don't know what the hell they're called, scoops me up and is skating with me off the ice as someone else is like questioning this kid and talking to him. And as he's taking me towards the hot house, I look behind me and there's just this trail of blood across the ice. I really hope that someone listening to this right now is remembering it. Like, oh shit, I was there that night. I remember that. Um, takes me off the ice, takes me into the hot house. They lay me down on the bench, blood, blood, blood. And then it started to burn. What had happened, obviously, was the kid had fallen and his ice skate had stabbed me in the leg. Ice skate blades, the backs, like the back end of an ice skate blade, that is no joke. That is, I mean, that shit is thick and it is sharp. So I just remember I kept asking them to get me ice. And, and they were trying to decide whether to call an ambulance or whether I was stable enough for my dad to take me to an emergency room. And I just kept asking for ice because my leg was burning. It burned so bad. And they kept saying, we don't have ice. And I remember being furious. I'm like eight, nine years old. I'm like, how do you not have ice at an ice rink? Well, because all they had to drink was like hot chocolate. They didn't have, you know, ice at an ice rink. So um, my dad wound up taking me 
to the hospital. I kind of, or not the hospital. He took me to ready care because it was the closest place to us. And I remember I had to wait for so long, so long that my leg didn't hurt anymore by the time they saw me. I kind of remember the car ride. We had to we had to like drop Trini off first. I think we went and dropped her off at home before they took me to ready care. I was kind of I don't think I was losing con I, I don't think I was passing out, but I was in a way kind of losing consciousness because the whole thing kind of goes in and out of fussiness. And poor Trini was so traumatized. She's still traumatized. Sorry, Trini. But so they take my parents take me to ready care. I had to wait for such a long time that my leg didn't even hurt anymore. This whole time, I'm still wearing all my snow pants, right? Because it's winter, it's cold. So I've got on like 12 layers of clothes. We haven't even seen what my leg looks like yet. There was a man there that had cut off part of his thumb or cut his hand really bad. And so he and I were kindred bloody spirits sitting there waiting forever for our turn to be seen. I remember him saying something to me, kind of like, what are you in for? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's the weird the things you remember from traumatic experiences like that. So they take me back. They they get off all these layers of clothes, and the doctor was, like, horrified. He said that because my leg was so small and the back of this ice skate was so thick and so sharp and hit me with such force that it actually looked like a gunshot wound. And that if I had been, you know, again, I had on sweatpants, long johns, like three pair of socks, my skates, all these layers between my skin and where the ice skate entered. And he said that if I had been probably wearing even one less layer than I had on, that it would have shattered the bone. So thank you, mom, for making me wear all of those clothes. So I know what it feels like to be stabbed. Yes, it was an accident. It wasn't a vicious thing, but I definitely got the shit stabbed out of my leg with an ice skate when I was eight. Um, so tell me yours. I'm going to make a post today on the So Dead Facebook discussion group uh, asking you to tell me your weirdest injuries for this episode's liquid cheese. I don't know. Is that weird? I think this is all weird. Anyway, what else? What else? What else? Uh, big changes to the podcast in 2021. You've probably noticed them already. So new logo from my pal, local artist Steve Jenks, who owns Screen Prints. His work is amazing and I love it. So you should check out his website, buy some of his work. Uh, his website is screenprints.com. My new theme song, do you love it? I love it. It's from a Michigan musician. Uh, she does business under Susan Marie Podcast Services. I don't believe she has a website. I'll have her correct me if I'm wrong. But if you find yourself in need of any kind of podcast services and you want to support a woman from Michigan, feel free to reach out and I will shoot you her contact info. The schedule for this year. I want to talk about that real quick. So we're back. We're doing episodes every other week through April. I'll take the month of May off for my spring break. I'll take the month of August off for my summer break, and then the season will end in November as they always do. Patreon, I've made some changes to the So Dead Patreon page. For those of you that are already patrons, thank you. I love you eternally. For those of you wondering what this Patreon thing is, I'm always talking about. Patreon is a platform for creators to connect with their fans on kind of a subscription basis. There are different pledge amounts, different benefits, and now there's an option to pay for a yearly subscription all at once and save a little bit of money. 
So when I say so debt is free, that's actually not true. It's free to you, but it costs me quite a chunk of change, uh, not to mention the majority of my free time and my sanity. So I appreciate so much uh, the help offsetting some of the costs. We're all in this together, right? So I want to tell you a little bit about the different tiers and benefits that are available right now. My $5 a month patrons are called Deadheads. They get early ad-free access to all episodes. Ad-free sounds silly to say. I don't do ads. It's in the works. So uh, I'm not going to be annoying with them. I'm not going to load the podcast with them, but there are going to be some ads added at some point to the show. Patrons will have access to ad-free. The episodes will be released to patrons at least two days early, sometimes much earlier if I'm feeling excited and and wanting to get it out there sooner. The $5 patrons get one bonus episode a month, a monthly shout out on all of my social media pages, my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, an entry into a monthly giveaway. I'm always mailing out random shit. And anytime I have big news to announce, new projects, big changes, anything like that, the patrons always hear it first. So $10 a month patrons are called weirdos. Weirdos get all of the benefits that the deadheads get, plus a handwritten note and a so dead sticker from yours truly. Uh, random mailings throughout the year. So I send like Valentine cards, Christmas cards, postcards sometimes just because you never know when something's going to show up in the mail. And who doesn't love mail? That's not a bill or junk mail. Weirdos also get a one-time code for 20% off a purchase on the Dead Time Stories website. All of your purchases from Dead Time Stories can be shipped or picked up. And if you're local to Lansing and you want to come in and make your purchase in person and get that 20% off, just tell me and we can we can do it. It's not a big deal. $25 a month patrons are called Super Freaks. Super freaks get all the same benefits as deadheads and weirdos, plus a so dead swag bag full of random merch and goodies, as well as the opportunity to choose a topic for a future so dead episode, which will include a shout out during said episode. Which reminds me, there are a couple of you who haven't picked your episode topic yet. Get that sent to me. Anyway, that's the gist of the whole Patreon thing. So if you're interested, you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash so dead podcast. I think that's it for today. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to So Dead wherever you listen. And make sure you're following So Dead on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. There's also a So Dead podcast discussion group on Facebook that's a lot of fun. It's a little different, um, little little less profesh than just the standard Facebook page. So uh, a new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. Uh, 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 so-